Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of Mrs. Warren's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Warren's Daughter by Sir Harry Johnston. Chapter Fourteen, Militancy, Part Two. Arrived at the Lilacs, Vivie took up for a brief spell the life of an ordinary young woman of the well-to-do middle class, seriously interested in the suffrage question, but non-militant. She attended several of Honoria's or Mrs. Fawcett's suffrage parties or public meetings, and occasionally spoke, and spoke well. She also went over to Brussels twice in 1912 to keep in touch with her mother. Mrs. Warren had had one or two slight warnings that a life of pleasure saps the strongest constitution. Footnote 1. Or so the observers say who haven't had a life of pleasure. She lived now mainly at her farm, the Via Beauséjour, and only occasionally occupied her appartement in the Rue Royale. She must have been about fifty-nine in the spring of 1912, and was beginning to soigner son salut, that is to say, to take stock of her past life, apologize for it to herself, and see how she could atone reasonably for what she had done wrong. A decade or two earlier she would have turned to religion, inevitably to that most attractive and logical form, the religion expounded by the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church. She would have confessed her past, slightly or very considerably gazé, to some indulgent confessor, have been pardoned, and have presented a handsome sum to an ecclesiastical charity or work of piety but she had survived into a sceptical age and had conceived an immense respect for her clever daughter vivie should be her spiritual director and vivie's idea put before her at their reconciliation three years previously had seemed the most practical way of making amends to woman for having made money in the past out of the economic and physiological weakness of women she had fined herself ten thousand pounds then, and out of her remaining capital of fifty or sixty thousand, all willed with what else she possessed to her daughter, she would pay over more if Vivie demanded it as further reparation. Still, she found the frequentation of churches soothing, and gave much and often to the mildly beseeching little sisters of the poor when they made their rounds in town or suburbs. "'What do you think about religion, Viv, old girl?' she said one day in the Easter tide of 1912, when Vivie was spending a delicious fortnight at Via Beauséjour. "'Personally,' said Vivie, "'I hate all religions, so far as I have had time to study them. They bind up with undisputed ethics more or less preposterous theories concerning life and death, the properties of matter, man, God, the universe, the laws of nature.' the food we should eat, the relations of the sexes, the quality of the weekly day of rest. Gradually they push indisputable ethics on one side, and are ready to apply torture, death, or social ostracism to the support of these preposterous theories and explanations of God and man. Such theories, went on Vivie, though her mother's attention had wandered to some escaped poultry that were scratching disastrously in seed-beds, such theories and explanations, mark you, do listen, mother, since you ask the question, 
i'm listening dearie but you talk like a book and i don't know what some of your words mean what's ethics well ethics means er er morality it comes from a greek word meaning character mrs warren you talk like a book vivie i do sometimes when i remember something i've read but now i've lost my thread what i meant to finish up with was something like this such theories and explanations were formulated several hundred or more than two thousand years ago in times when man's knowledge of himself of his surroundings of the earth and the universe was almost non-existent yet they were preserved to our times as sacred revelations though they are not superior to the fancies and fetish rites of a savage there all that answer is quoted from professor rossiter's little book home university library the growth of the human mind mrs warren rossiter is that the man you're sweet on vivie don't put it so coarsely there's a great friendship between us we belong to a later generation than you a man and a woman can be friends now without becoming lovers mrs warren go on don't humbug me men and women's the same as when i was young i'm sorry all the same dear girl there are you growin middle-aged and not married to some good-arted chap as ud give you three four children i could pet in me old age would you want to go fallin in love with some chap as has got a wife already i know your principles there's iron in your blood same as there is in that proud priest your father i know you'd break your art sooner and have a good time with a professor my it seems to me love's as bad as religion for bringing about sorrow vivie if you mean that it is answerable for the same intense happiness and even more intense unhappiness i suppose you're right i'm miserable mother and it's some relief to me to say so if i could become honourably the wife of michael rossiter i'm afraid i should let suffrage have the go-by but as i can't why this struggle for the vote is the only thing that keeps me going i shall fight for it for another ten years and by that time certain physiological changes may have taken place in me and my feelings towards rossiter will have calmed down here mrs warren proceeded to call out rather disharmoniously in flemish to the poultry woman and ask why the something or other she let the hoodens spoil the seed-beds mrs warren resuming well it's clear you're your father's daughter he'd have gone on did go on in just such a way im and me were jolly well suited to one another i'd got to regular love him i'd have been a true wife to him and have worked my fingers to the bone for him and you bet i'd have made a livin somehow and he'd have written some jolly good books and have made lots of money but no this beastly religion comes in with its scare of hell-fire and back he goes to the priests and his prayers and his penances the last ten years or so he's been filled up with pride his passions have died down and he thinks himself an awful swell as the head of his order and they do say as he's got his fingers in several pies and is a regular old conspirator workin up the irish to do something against england you know since i've made my peace with you ain't it a rum go by the by ten or twenty years ago it'd a been my peace with god i don't know nothin about god can't see him at the end of a telescope anyways but i can see you vivie and there's no one livin i respect more speaks with real feeling 
"'Well, as I was sayin', since I'd set myself right with you "'and wound up the business of the hotels, "'I ain't so easy cowed by his looks as I used to be. "'So every now and then it amuses me to run over in my auto to Louvain "'and stroll about there and watch him as he comes out for his promenade, "'pretendin' to be readin' a breviary or some holy book. "'I know it riles him. "'Well, but for high principles, he and I might have been as happy as happy.' and had a large family, and there was nothing to stop him a marrying me, if that was all he wanted to feel comfortable about it. But just see, he's had a life that seems to me downright sterile, and I, well, I ain't been really happy till we made it up three years ago. Leans over and kisses Vivie a little timorously. Now there's you, burning yourself out cause your high principles won't let you go for once in a way on the spree with this Rossiter. Supposing he's game, of course. You've too much pride to throw yourself at his head. But if he loves you as bad as you loves him, why don't you ask him? Instinctively the old ministress of love speaks here. Ask him to take you over to Paris for a trip. I'll lay he has to go over now and again to the Sorbonne or one of them scientific institutes. She'd never come to hear of it. And after one or two such honeymoons you'd soon get tired of him. "'specially now you're getting on a bit in years, "'and maybe you'd settle down quietly after that. "'Or if you ain't regular set on him, "'why not give up this suffrage business "'and live a bit with me here? "'There's plenty of upstanding, decent Belgian men "'in good positions as would like to have an English wife. "'They wouldn't look too shy at my money. "'Vivie, get thee behind me, Satan. "'Mother, you oughtn't to make such propositions.' "'Don't you understand we must all have a religion somewhere, "'some principle to which we sacrifice ourselves? "'Rossiter would be horrified if he could hear you. "'His mistress is science, "'besides which he is really devoted to his wife "'and would do nothing that could hurt her. "'You don't know England, it's clear. "'Supposing for one moment I could consent, and I couldn't, "'we should be found out for a certainty, "'and then Michael's career would be ruined.' My religion, though I sometimes weary of it and sneer at it, is women's rights. Women must have precisely the same rights as men, no disqualification whatever based merely on their being women. Did you read those disgusting letters in the Times by the surgeon, the midwifery man, Sir Rigsby Blaine, declaring that the demand for the vote was based on immorality, and pretending that once a month, till they were fifty, and for several years after they were fifty, women were not responsible for their actions because of what he vaguely called physiological processes. What poisonous rubbish! You know as well as I do that in most cases it makes little or no difference, and if it does, what about men? Aren't they, at certain times, not their normal selves? When they're full up with wine or beer or whiskey, when they're courting, when they're pursuing some illicit love, when after fifty they get a little odd in their ways through this, that, and the other internal trouble or change of function. What's true of the one sex is equally true of the other. Most men and women between twenty and sixty jolly well know what they want, and generally they want something reasonable. We don't legislate for the freaks, the unbalanced, the abnormal. Or if we do restrict the vote in those cases, let's restrict it for males as well as females. 
but don't you see at the same time what a text i should furnish to this malign creature if i ran away to paris with michael and made the slightest false step even though it had no bearing on the main argument at this juncture vivie whose obsession leads her more and more to address every one as a public meeting is interrupted by the smiling bonne à toute faire who announces that le déjeuner de madame est servi and the two women gathering up books and shawls go into the gay little salle à manger of the via beau séjour on vivie's return to london after her easter holiday she threw herself with added zest into the suffrage struggle the fortnight of good feeding of quiet nights and lazy days under her mother's roof had done her much good she was not quite so thin the dark circles under her grey eyes had vanished and she found not only in herself but even in the most middle-aged of her associates a delightful spirit of tomboyishness in their swelling revolt against the liberal leaders it was specially during the remainder of nineteen twelve that vivie noted the enormous good which the suffrage movement had done and was doing to british women it was producing a splendid camaraderie between high and low heroines like lady constance lytton mingled as sister with equally heroic charwomen factory girls typewriteresses waitresses and hospital nurses women doctors of science music and medicine came down into the streets and did the bravest actions to present their rights before a public that now began to take them seriously debutantes no longer quivering with fright at entering the royal presence modestly but audibly called their sovereign's attention to the injustice of mr asquith's attitude towards women while princesses of the blood royal had difficulty in not applauding many a tame cat had left the fireside and the skirts of an inane old mother who had plenty of people to look after her selfish wants and emerged dazed at first into a world that was unknown to her such had thrown away their crochet hooks their tatting shuttles and fashion articles their church almanacs and girls own library books and read and talked of social sexual and industrial problems that have got to be faced and solved colour came into their cheeks assurance into their faded manners sense and sensibility into their talk and whatever happened afterwards they were never crammed back again into the prison of victorian spinsterhood they learnt rough cooking skilled confectionery typewriting bicycling jiu-jitsu perhaps the maidens came they talked they sang they read till she not fair began to gather light and she that was became her former beauty treble sang in prophecy sixty years before the greatest of poets and the poet-prophet of women's emancipation many a woman has directly owed the lengthened happier usefuller life that became hers from nineteen ten nineteen eleven nineteen twelve onwards to the suffrage movement for the liberation of women the crises of nineteen twelve moreover were not so acute as bitterly to envenom the struggle in the way that happened during the two following years there was always some hope that the ministry might permit the passing of an amendment to the franchise bill which would in some degree affirm the principle of female suffrage it is true that a certain liveliness was maintained by the suffragettes 
the WSPU dared not relax in its militancy lest ministers should think the struggle waning and woman already tiring of her claims. The vaunted manhood suffrage bill had been introduced by an anti-woman suffrage Quaker minister, and its second reading had been proposed by an equally anti-feminist secretary of state. This was in June-July 1912, and no member of the cabinet had risen to say a word in favor of the women's claims. Still, something might be done in committee in the autumn session, if there were one, or in the following year. There was a simmering in the suffrage ranks rather than any alarming explosion. In March, before Vivie went to Brussels, Mrs. Pankhurst had carried out a window-smashing raid on Bond Street and Regent Street and the clubs of Piccadilly, during which, among the 219 arrests, there were brought to light as revolutionaries two elderly women surgeons of great distinction and one female doctor of music. In revenge, the police had raided the WSPU offices at Clifford's Inn, an event long foreseen and provided against in the neighboring Chancery Lane. The Irish Nationalist Party had shown its marked hostility to the enfranchisement of women in any Irish Parliament, and so a few impulsive Irish women had thrown things at Nationalist MPs without hurting them. Mr. Lansbury had spoken the plain truth to the Prime Minister in the House of Commons, and had been denied access to that chamber where truth is so seldom welcome. In July the slumbering movement towards resisting the payment of taxes by voteless women woke up into real activity, and there were many ludicrous and pathetic scenes organized often by Vivie and Bertie Adams, at which household effects were sold and bought in by friends to satisfy the claims of a tax collector. In the autumn Vivie and others of the WSPU organized great pilgrimages, the marches of the brown women from Scotland, Wales, Devon, and Norfolk to London, to some goal in Downing Street or Whitehall, some doorstep which already had every inch of its space covered by policemen's boots. These were among the pleasantest of the manifestations, and excited great good humor in the populace of town and country. They were extended picnics of ten days or a fortnight, the steady tramp of sixteen to twenty miles a day did the women good. The food en route was abundant and eaten with tremendous appetite. The pilgrims on arrival in London were a justification in physical fitness of women's claim to equal privileges with man. Vivie, after her Easter holiday, took an increasingly active part in these manifestations of usually good-humoured insurrection. As Vivian Warren, she was not much known to the authorities or to the populace, but she soon became so, owing to her striking appearance, telling voice, and gift of oratory. All of the art she had learnt as David Williams, she displayed now in pleading the woman's cause at the Albert Hall, at Manchester, in Edinburgh, and Glasgow. Countess Phoenix took her up, invited her to dinner parties where she found herself placed next to statesmen in office who at first morose and nervous, expecting every moment a personal assault, gradually thawed when they found her a good conversationalist, a clever woman of the world, becomingly dressed. 
After all, she had been a third wrangler at Cambridge, almost a guarantee that her subsequent life could not be irregular, according to a man's standard in England of what an unmarried woman's life should be. She deprecated the violence of the militants in this phase. But she was protean. Much of her work, the lawless part of it, was organized in the shape and dress of Mr. Michaelis. Some of her letters to the press were signed Edgar McKenna, Albert Burrell, Andrew Asquith, Edgemont Harcourt, Felicia Ward, Millicent Curzon, Judith Pease, Edith Spencer Churchill, Marianne Chamberlain, or Emily Burns, and affected to be pleased for the granting of the suffrage emanating from the revolting sons or daughters, aunts, sisters or wives of great statesmen, prominent for their opposition to the woman's cause. The WSPU had plenty of funds, and it did not cost much getting visiting cards engraved with such names, and supplied with the home address of the great personage whom it was intended to annoy. One such card as an evidence of good faith would be attached to the plausibly worded letter. The Times was seldom taken in, but great success often attended these audacious deceptions, especially in the important organs of the provincial press. Editors and sub-editors seldom took the trouble and the time to hunt through who's who or a peerage to identify the writer of the letter claiming the vote for women. No real combination of names was given, thus forgery was avoided, but the public and the unsuspecting editor were left with the impression that the premiers, colonial secretaries, home secretaries, board of trade presidents, or prominent anti-suffragist woman's son, daughter, brother, sister, wife, or mother-in-law did not at all agree with the anti-feminist opinions of its father, mother, brother, or husband. If the politician were foolish enough to answer and protest, he was generally at a disadvantage. The public thought it a good joke, and no one, in the provinces, believed his disclaimers. Vivie generally heckled ministers on the stump and parliamentary candidates dressed as a woman of the lower middle class. It would have been unwise to do so in man's guise, in case there should be a rough-and-tumble afterwards and her sex be discovered. Although in order to avoid premature arrest she did not herself take part in those most ingenious, and from the view of endurance, heroic, stowaways of women interrupters in the roofs, attics, inaccessible organ lofts, or music galleries of public halls, she organized many of these surprises beforehand. It was Vivie to whom the brilliant idea came of once baffling the police in the rearrest of either Mrs. Pankhurst or Annie Kenny, knowing when the police would come to the building where one or other of these ladies was to make her sensational reappearance, she had previously secreted there forty other women, who were dressed and veiled precisely similarly to the fugitive from justice. Then, when the force of constables claimed admittance, forty-one women, virtually indistinguishable one from the other, ran out into the street, and the bewildered minions of the law were left lifting their helmets to scratch puzzled heads, and admitting, the women were a bit too much for us this time they were. In her bedroom at eighty-eight ninety she kept an equipment of theatrical disguises, very natural-looking moustaches which could be easily applied and which remained firmly adhering, save under the application of the right solvent. 
pairs of tinted spectacles wigs of credible appearance different styles of suiting different types of women's dress she sometimes sat in trains as a handsome impressive matron of fifty-five with a pompadour confection and a tortoiseshell face à main conversing with ministers of state or permanent officials on their way to their country seats and saying horrid creatures if anyone referred to the activities of the suffragettes thus disguised she elicited considerable information sometimes though she might really be on her way to organize the break-up of the statesman's public meeting the inquiry into discreditable circumstances which might compel his withdrawal from public life or merely the burning down of his shooting-box this life had its risks and perils but it agreed with her health it was exciting and took her mind off rossiter rossiter for his part experienced a slackening in the tension of his mind during the same year nineteen twelve he was touched by his wife's faint suspicion of his alienated affection and by her dogged determination to be sufficient to him as a companion and a helper and a little ashamed at his middle-aged he was forty-seven infatuation for a woman who was herself well on in the thirties there were times when a rift came in the cloud of his passion for vivie when he looked out dispassionately on the prospect of the rest of his life he could hope at most for twenty more years of mental and bodily activity and energy was this all too brief period to be filled up with a senile renewal of sexual longing he felt ashamed of the thoughts that had occupied so much of his mind since he had laid david williams on the couch of his library to find it was vivie warren whose arms were round his neck he was not sorry this love for a woman he could not possess had sent him into parliament he was beginning to enjoy himself there he had found himself had lost that craven fear of the speaker that paralyzes most new members he knew when to speak and when to be silent and when he spoke unsuspected gifts of biting sarcasm clever characterization convincing scorn of the uneducated minister type came to his aid his tongue played round his victims unequipped as they were with his vast experience of reality vaguely discursive on the surface as are most lawyers at a loss for similes and tropes as are most men of business or dull of wits as are most of the fine flowers of the public schools stultified with the classics and scripture history he knew that unless there was some radical change of government he could not be a minister but he cared little for that he was rich thanks to his wife he was recovering his influence and his european and american reputation as a great discoverer a deep thinker he enjoyed pulverizing the ministry over their suffrage insincerities and displaying his contempt of the politician elected only for his money influence in borough county or in the subscription lists of the chief whip though his pulses still beat a little quicker when he held vivie's hand in his at some reception of lady phoenix's or at a dinner-party at the gorings vivie as the child of a fallen woman had a prescriptive right of entrance to diana's circle he had not the slightest intention of running away with her of nipping his career in two just as he might be scaling the last heights to the citadel of fame 
either as a politician of the new type the type of high education or as one of the giants of inductive science besides in nineteen twelve if i mistake not dr smith woodward and mr charles dawson made that discovery of the remains of an ape-like man in the gravels of mid-sussex and the hounds of anthropology went off on a new scent at full cry rossiter foremost in the pack end of chapter fourteen part two